One method that they did was when one enslaved person did something wrong, they would not whip them in isolation. They would whip them in front of everyone. Like they would Mm. use them as a way of you do something wrong. This is you. And Mm. they created this insidious trauma onto everyone else. So I started connecting like, yo, why is it that all of these videos of black being Black people being killed is so accessible. It's in our face 24-7. Why is it when I go on CNN or whatever, I'm seeing the same freaking clip over and over and over? And then I'm getting riled up every time I'm getting like crying. And I keep like, I'm like, there's something here that I feel is on purpose. Brittany King, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. Of course, of course. So if you guys are, you're listening to this and and watching this, of course, but there is another about 30 minute portion of the conversation that we recorded last time that's specifically about Kid Cudi about drinking, you know, some other wild stuff. And that will be released along with this conversation, but it'll be separate. So you can see that on the YouTube channel or podcast. So just so you guys know, tuning in that this is the the folder length conversation now that we both have uh, structurally sound Wi-Fi to complete this journey. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so, that is going to be good. So Yes, yes, out. of course. So I actually... Last time, one of the things that I was about to get into with you is your comparison between Beethoven and Kid Cudi, because we spoke about Kid Cudi's artistry on the the last portion of the conversation when we left off. And I wanted to actually start with an excerpt that you had written about Beethoven and how you have experienced uh, Beethoven's art. And so you wrote in uh, The Kids That Cuddy Saved, which is the title of the article in Spin Magazine, shout out to uh, Spin, you wrote that as Beethoven credits art as his reasoning from a fatal decision, perhaps it's much deeper than that. Maybe the power of music isn't just about how it makes us feel, but what it encourages us to ultimately understand. Can you explore the connection that you've felt with Beethoven or that that bridge that you saw between Beethoven and Kid Cudi that made you want to explore them in that same article? Well, funny enough, when I was exploring Kid Cudi's impact on culture and music with mental health awareness, I was just thinking like, this is something that's not just a contemporary phenomenon. I'm like, this is something that's had to have happened before. Like this conversation, maybe in a different way, had to happen. And so I was researching, I came across Beethoven. I did remember hearing about Beethoven years back, how he suffered from depression and stuff, but I never dived as deep into it as I did this time. And when I did, I realized, wow, this person who is seen as one of the best composers of all time suffered with depression, suffered with suicidal thoughts, suffered with anxiety because of the fact that he had this ability to make music and he was gifted, but then he started losing his hearing. So he couldn't even hear the art he was Mm -hmm. making. And it made him very depressed. Of course, it made him very um, like, what's the point of living if I can't even experience the art I'm giving the world. And so when 
it was the art and the music that saved him. But then he said it was more so like his connection with, um, with God. I realized that there was something bigger here and that perhaps if Beethoven, you know, did decide to go the other route and not be inspired to stay alive by his music or God, Look at all of the people now who were impacted by Beethoven's music that became musicians mm. in their own right, down to the fact that even Nas sampled um in I Can, his one of the best rap songs that I love by him. He samples mm. Beethoven's music. And there's and the Beatles sampled Beethoven. I believe Jay-Z did. And there's so many like rappers, rock stars, country, like everyone sampled Beethoven. And and I know Kid Cudi, um, I don't know if he sampled cut uh beethoven but he's talked about beethoven and stuff so all of these people inspired by this one man and it was because of his choice to stay alive that he impacted the world mm. in a world that he has never even seen and kid cuddy had that same impact kid cuddy didn't even know by staying alive he was inspiring other people to stay alive yeah it seems like such a big accomplishment for Beethoven to just live a normal life, like an uneventful life with the cards that he was dealt with going deaf and then also living in the time period where if you had a mental health problem, if you were depressed, if you were anxious, there's no one really that you can talk to about it because people were more in the mindset that if you're, you know, experiencing something in line with anxieties or panic attacks, voices, things like that. That was like witchcraft or just like this unknown Hysteria. shit. Yeah, like you yeah. could be you, you could be, you know, uh burnt alive or, you know, crucified like just like all this wild shit that people were doing back in the day to people who were expressing mental health problems and the fact that he was losing his hearing and also is clearly at, in the very least mentally fatigued and probably you know, maybe suffering from some sort of disorder like PTSD or anxiety disorder or combination, like something too far outside of my expertise to speculate. He had both of those things he was dealing with and then became, you know, one of the greatest composers, if not the greatest composer of all time. Exactly. And I do believe um, in the piece I said he confided in his in his brothers. I don't know if it was like his actual brother or like if that was a figurative speech, like his brother, his friend. But mm. it was in a letter. But even with that, like you're dealing with it in real time and you have to write it out in a letter and then you send it. You don't know if it even is going to get to the person. It's not going to come back right away. It's not like a text. Like now we have yeah. so much access to help. And he won, like having the fear to say it. Because you don't know what someone will say. And then two, not immediate help. So there's a whole different element there that I found pretty fascinating too. Yeah, getting left on red back then was way more intense <laughs> than it is now. Like people get left on red for four minutes and they're like, my life is over. Back then, you, yeah, yeah, back then you, you get left on red for six months. Um, you know, I, I uh, went down to New Orleans late last year around October last year and there's so much mystery and and dark magic about that city and there are a lot of stories where people had to send letters and you would wait months to hear back and sometimes years to hear back in New Orleans and there was one woman in particular that sent out a letter to her husband and like a year later found out he just decided to leave or go off with some other woman or in some cases, the person would be dead. So it's like sending out a letter mm -hmm. to someone and waiting to hear back must have been just a total mindfuck back then. 
Definitely. I can't even, we yeah. can't imagine that right now at all. Like no, we can't even go like 10 minutes without Wi-Fi. Like that's everything. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I've uh, I, I uh, rationalized my addiction to Wi-Fi because I'm doing podcasting, but in reality, I'm just using podcasting as an excuse to to stay online to feed my addiction. Okay. Well, that's a good one. Yeah. Podcasting every man. Um, and it also when I was reading your article, I was thinking about the fact that all, and this is just to me, but a lot of the characters that I read about in history, like human beings. But to me, they seem like characters because I had there's no video of them. There's no there's no uh, th- like there's not the level of detail that there is today where if a movie star or a, a The Weeknd or something or Leonardo DiCaprio passes away, there's going to be all this film, all these photos, all this imagery of them left behind where you can really get a feel like the person just feels real. And I caught myself thinking that like. When I hear name like Beethoven, I don't even attribute the fact that he had emotions and he was a human being and he dealt with breakups and anxieties and all this shit because he's so far back that to me, he's just like a name that I should know. And I'm reading mm-hmm. this stuff about him that you wrote. And, and I also just started the the Leonardo da Vinci autobiography by Walter Isaacson and just like all this detail about people's lives back then even average people like even if it was just someone who we don't talk about today there was so much shit back then and and it seems like it's it's harder to connect to it so that that's also why i enjoyed reading the article because it was a reminder that all the shit we're dealing with now also existed back then even more so to some degree yeah i would say it was a reminder for me it really conceptualized him as a human like you were saying humanized him in so many ways where I was just fascinated hearing like researching and learning him but it's funny that you you talk about like Beethoven being a character and it's true like people back then like especially like people of greatness are like synonymous with just being great it's almost like Beethoven's a figure of speech more Mm. than a person so yeah that was that was fun to do to really like see this was a human like, even as great as he is, he was a human and it was inspiring, too. Mm. So I'm glad that translated because that's what I was hoping people got. Yeah, it's it's it definitely did. And it's weird to think about that when you become celebritized and you're someone in history like Beethoven, there's also this big aspect of dehumanization because your name gets put in textbooks and you're in grade school, you have those, you know, four or five bullet points about Beethoven's life and you study all these characters throughout history and their most uh, remembered accomplishments in a way are the least human aspects about them because no one can really relate to writing symphonies that way. Only a few people throughout history and then all the other stuff that people deal with on a day-to-day basis is forgotten so it's like this weird back and forth of the more famous you become the less human you become in a lot of ways to the people who are going to read about you in the future hey guys this is a quick reminder that the two best ways you can support the show are by one leaving a rating and comment on apple Podcasts and spotify this is like foreplay for the algorithm because it revs it up and makes our show appear higher in searches and number two you can subscribe to auxoro premium at auxoro.supercast.com where for five bucks a month you get bonus episodes and more exclusive content thank you for however you choose to support the show it's true but i think that's why so many people love kid cuddy 
Because I think he's like lauded up on that platform of you're so famous, you're so great. And I think he continuously, purposely knocks himself off that pedestal. Mm. Like he's like refuses to be someone that's not seen as just like us. And I think that is why Beethoven and Kid Cudi align so much. Because I'm like, let's just think if social media was back then. Maybe Beethoven would have been one of those. Because he seemed to me like a humble person. Like, even mm. though he was great, he seemed very humble to his art. Like, he didn't seem like he was the only one doing great things. Even though people might say that. But he was just in love with it. And I think that Kid Cudi shares that same enjoyment and love with his art. But doesn't want people to think, like, he's now transcended into being yeah. some type of famous god. So. Yeah, e- e- even the way he makes music, he... What he does, what Kid Cudi does is so incredible and also, and I mean this as the utmost compliment to him, pedestrian. Like it, it feels like he's speaking and singing at the same time where it's almost like you could, you feel like you could do that. What Kid Cudi is doing on the mic, you feel like this is something attainable but then of course when you go try it for yourself and you find out oh fuck like the reason it feels so attainable is because he's done it for over 10 years to make it seem easy almost Mm -hmm. like stand-up comedy in a way stand-up comedy is such a pedestrian act like it's such a every man every woman thing you're just up on stage with a microphone and then people go up and they find out how hard it is and how nuanced it is i i feel similarly with with Kid Cudi's music Beethoven I'm like I hear some shit I was listening on Spotify today and I'm like there's nothing like world. like me in this music like like there's nothing it's in this music that reminds me of me but it's still sick to listen to exactly um and with Kid Cudi yeah like it's he is that type of relatability to him but like even him humming it's something that people know him for, but we, if all of us are humming, like, mm, like when I do it, it don't matter. Like it's not, he has a specific thing, like gift, gill. Mm. Um, and same for comedians like Dave Chappelle. It seems so easy because he seems like he's just, so, it's like a flawless thing, but it takes practice and yeah. Did you, have see, it. did you see the speech that Dave Chappelle made about Jon Stewart at the Mark Twain yeah. Awards? And I, and he said he didn't prepare for it. And I'm like, you didn't prepare for this? And this was great. This was such if, a good speech. If if that is true, because I, you know, it, it, he says it in the speech and he maybe it's part of the act of what he's doing. I guess you never know because there's so many levels. But assuming that he did not prepare at all for that, that may be one of the best examples of public speaking ever. Like off the top, characterization storyline callbacks all in real time in your head without saying um or uh or like once just the way he tied that story together that may be the most masterful piece of public speaking i've ever seen and again like even if it was planned that still doesn't take away from it for me but the fact that um he claims that it wasn't even makes it sit on that legendary stool a little bit more Mm -hmm. 
And it kind of spoke to his style of how he does stand up. Because when he does stand up, he always starts with something. And at the end, it usually is like a ribbon. And it just ends with the thing he started with. And I believe in the beginning, he talked about the Dave Chappelle show, like being the inception or like starting before um, Jon Stewart's late night show. And then he made a joke at the end, like, and I got the award, the Mark Twain award before you did. Like just smart things like that. Yeah. And just like, he's so brilliant. I love him. Yeah, like calling, mentioning that he was the lead in to The Daily Show and then tying that together for the awards ceremony, saying that I won it before you. Mm-hmm. That was, I was just like, wow, that that is fucking insane. Yeah, it's so good. Do you, so do you try in your own writing and on your YouTube channel, of course, do you try to act like you're just talking to a person in casual conversation because i i've always wondered what gives people like that sort of ease in talking or speaking and i i like the way you write it comes off very easy and and flowing to read do you think about i'm just like talking to someone like a a friend or i'm sitting on the couch or something like that yes and i i this is something i'm like this is a skill i learned well honestly in grad school i became like I sharpened my skills in in simplification because Mm. when I got my bachelor's it's almost like I have my bachelor's in um, writing and and literature and it's like you want to come off so um, professional and you want to come off like you know what you're talking about so you might use certain colloquialisms and that maybe people don't even know about or you might use ten dollar words or just because you want people to take you seriously Mm. but within that you can lose a whole half of your audience because they're kind, they might think you're pretentious. They might think you're trying to be haughty or whatever. And I realized when I was in grad school, specifically when I took, um, when I got accepted into a Ta-Nehisi Coates writing course, mm. and there's only 10 of us in there. And on it, I say this and it sounds cliche, but this course changed my life with writing. When he simply, he told us a whole lesson, but one thing he said that stuck with me was, don't do this to your reader. Do this. Like mm. he wants, he's like, make sure that you are writing something that's enjoyable, that's beautiful, that gets them excited. And with that, you have to make sure they understand what you're saying. So even if you're using these $10 words and you, to you, it makes sense. Think, okay, if someone else doesn't use these type of, if this out there lexicon, how can I simplify that down? And it Mm. might take more time. And with this piece, with the Beethoven stuff, when I first was writing it, and then I was writing the Kid Cudi stuff, it kind of kind of clashed because it kind of sounded more classical in the sense of how I was writing Beethoven versus Cudi. And I'm Mm. like, no, it has to flow. All of it has to be seamless like this. I have Mm. to bring this down a notch. I can't use this word to describe these sonnets that Beethoven's, I need to simplify it down. And then I'm like, okay, here's a cool way of showing impact. Instead of just saying Beethoven's impact, find the songs that actually samples Beethoven. Find the artist that, so people are like, oh, dang, Nas, like you, everyone knows that Nas song. And then you connect, someone might not even have connected like, oh, that was Beethoven? Oh, the, Be- the Beatles did? Yeah. So I wanted to do that. But I always keep in mind, to write a piece that I would want to read. And I want to read mm. something fun and enjoyable and something I would be excited to share with people. And I make sure that when I read it back, it's almost like 
Well, I've never made a... Well, that's not true. I'm like, I've never made a, a song. I have written songs, but have they gone anywhere? No. But it's yeah, almost same, same. kind of I, like... I have... Uh, I've had... Uh, I've made songs that are very tragic and that I will not be linking to this podcast, but I can link to yours if if you would like. I definitely want to hear that. Um, I won't ruin your day with sharing you my music, but I, I love writing music and, and poetry or whatever. And that's what I see as essays or articles or whatever. It doesn't matter. It needs to sound beautiful. Like it needs to sound good. And I read everything aloud because I want to picture what the reader might be seeing. Mm. I want them to see the illustrations. I don't want to tell them. I want to show them with imagery certain things. So yeah, I just, I want to, all in all, I want my piece to be universally simplified, hopefully, so people get it. And I want it to be enjoyable and fun, mm. no matter the so, subject I'm writing about. Yeah, so it's, it sounds like you you want to write something that excites yourself, but you're also thinking about the audience and how they're going to perceive that and not wanting to waste their time, if that makes sense. Like you, exactly. you want them to get something out of it. Exactly. So I can't. Yeah. And Coates also said that he said, make sure every sentence has a purpose and that you're just not doing these filler paragraphs. He's like, because one, that's kind of condescending. It's like you're being like, trust me, like I'll get to the good part. He's like, no, everything should be a good part. He's like, you should, mm. like, why should you tell them to stick around? Like, for what? Like, it, they can go mm. and do listen to a podcast or listen to someone else. So, yeah, that's something I learned. I'm glad it's sticking with me. It seems to be working. Yeah, that's, so I'm sure you're familiar with the sort of sales format where you're supposed to hook people in and then you give them some information before, but it's, you kind of bury the main message to where you want someone to read a certain amount. And I'm, I'm probably completely butchering, uh, this approach, but I, I've, I've seen sales writing where someone's trying to get you to buy a product and it always makes me feel, it makes me feel too much like I'm being sold. So I never, I never mm. really finish it, but then I also see writing and I would definitely put your writing in this category where you're not getting to the main point right away, but you're also not just like hooking people in false hopes of like a huge payoff. Everything that you're using, everything that you're saying to describe something has a purpose and it's not to get you to read two more paragraphs or get you to stay on a page for 30 more seconds for ad dollars or something like that. Like there's just, it mm -hmm. seems like there's something so sleazy about sales writing and they, there's, it seems there's there are two sides of the same coin, like sales versus writing to get your attention. But I'm a big fan of writing that gets my attention that doesn't feel like I'm being sold something. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, I, that type of writing I do see and I can tell it right away. But yes, I of course, the message that I was getting to was closer to the end, but it wasn't mm. meant to trick anyone to be like, I'm going to make you read until the end. It was to make it that I needed all this information to show the impact of the end. Like, mm. I can tell you the end, but then, and I tell you the rest of the information, it's not going to hit. But it's like a good movie. Like, you got to set it up. And it's also something that's kind of entertainment for you, too. And it's just giving you more information to be like, okay, and this is why the point of this whole thing. So 
Yeah. How do you how do you think about that process of wanting to be concise and having a message when you're speaking on your YouTube channel or you're having conversations with people? Because this is something I struggle with a lot where I have this metronome in my head that's trying to keep a rhythm of speaking. And then I'm also worrying that the things I'm talking about now are wasting people's time in some way, or I'm not saying it as well as I could. And there's no really editing process in podcasting. I mean, if you want, you could go back and take things out, but it's going to take away context from the conversation. How do you think of that process when you're applying it to speaking? Well, with YouTube, okay, so I had a podcast actually at NYU for the the radio show before I had YouTube. And when I would do my script writing for my podcast, I would make sure it sounds like I'm actually just speaking, even though everything's basically written down. But I would just type as I'm talking. And then, of course, you Mm. sharpen up with, you know, grammatical errors. But I would I I talked like I was talking to a friend, like I'm like you're hearing me talk on the phone with you. Like that's kind of how I was talking and giving that information in that way as well. And, And I applied that to my YouTube. But it's different with YouTube because you don't want to necessarily be looking down and reading when there's a video on you. You kind of have to memorize things and you kind of and you do have to, you know, recite things over in your mind, but then let it kind of flow and be like, okay, I know what I'm talking about and making sure you're having a conversation. So sometimes I'll picture a friend. Sometimes I'll just picture a person. Um, I don't try to think of that. I'm talking to a crowd ever. I'm talking to a person because mm. that's literally who I am talking to. I'm talking to a lot of different individuals. No one's in a whole room together. Everyone's by themselves or maybe with a friend. But I want to make sure that the tone of how I write is definitely the tone of how I do my YouTube channel. Conversational, mm. simple. And it does take a long time because certain things that might be complicated that I feel like this needs to be explained in 30 minutes. But who's sticking around for 30 minutes? I got to figure out how to say this in two minutes. Mm. And it's hard. But when you do that, people are like, dang, like, I get it. And sometimes it's just using image or, or something like that. So you, you have to think of these tricks and get creative and innovative. But no matter what, the tone with me still stays. It's I don't care if I'm doing someone else's podcast, my own channel, writing. If I am not interesting you with the content and it's not fun for you to enjoy, it doesn't matter how good it is. Mm. You'll never you'll never continue to listen if you are like, this is boring. <laughs> that, and that's why I'm going to take this two hour conversation and condense it down into 25 seconds, because I, I want it to be you know as what? condensed and interesting as possible. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so so one of the things that we spoke offline about that I wanted to get into in this conversation is that you founded a Black Lives Matter chapter back in 2016 in Columbus. And I believe you you grew up in Columbus, Ohio, or you were you you spent a lot of time there. It's Columbus, Indiana, but everyone Columbus, says Indiana. Ohio. I'm so, I'm sorry. So, no worries. I would have been shocked if you actually said Indiana. <clears throat> um, yeah, Columbus, Indiana, 2016 is when I started Black Lives Matter of Columbus. Um, but I started it like. It was uh, spontaneous because it was right after Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were murdered back to back within 24 hours. And I was enraged to say the least. And I didn't know what to do. But Mm. I am someone that, you know, have always admired Martin Luther King Jr. 
always admired Malcolm X and that whole movement. My dad grew up under Jim Crow in Birmingham, Alabama. My mom grew up in Detroit. So I know like their actual history with it. And I've always been fascinated with that era. But I just was like, okay, I remember Dr. King saying something in the Birmingham uh, letter from a Birmingham jail that he was like, you know, sometimes if you feel this rage, you need to like march it out or protest it out instead of doing something negative or violent. And I was like, okay, mm. I could maybe do a protest. I'm ne- like, there's never been a protest in Columbus, Indiana in this way. And if I'm wrong, someone will tell me, but I've never heard of a protest as long as I was living there. Um, it's a pretty conservative Republican town. Like, you know, so it's not, those issues aren't really broadcast. So I was like, I can go down to city hall, get 15 friends, 10 or 15 friends, and just stand there silently with signs and, and I don't know. Like, I just did that. So I went, I told my friends, I said, hey, I'm going to be down there at three. I'm probably there until five, you know, just bring a sign. Mm-hmm. We'll write names on it. And we're just going to stand there. And we're not going to shout. We're not going to chant. We're just going to stand with signs. And my friends came. It was like 15 of us who were down there silently. And we are in front of the busy road. So people were seeing us, putting their heads out. What's going on here? Mm. And people, some people were honking and like clapping. Some people were saying, you know, other things that weren't, you know, supportive. But that, I wasn't shocked. But then as I was standing there and time was winding down, I'm like, I looked at my friend. I'm like, yo, like, I'm so sick of protesting. though. Like, I'm so sick of us making signs when people die. And then what we're going to do, like, go home. Like, what are we actually mm. fundamentally going to do? So um, my friend and I decided, okay, let's just see how many people here would like to do something. And we got a private group, Facebook group, didn't call it anything. We didn't know what to call it. But then um, I thought about, what about Black Lives Matter? And I looked at their objectives and everything at that point, And it was very, very clear at that stage. And I was like, okay, we can we can support this. Also, we need to tailor our... Black Lives Matter chapter to our city. We can't act like we're Chicago, Baltimore, Ferguson, because we're not. We're a different Mm. city, but we can still do things to make some type of change here, too. So that's how that created. And we were a group until 2018, until I left for NYU. Mm. So, yeah, what so for you, what specifically made those shootings the breaking point to start the Black Lives Matter chapter? Was it Is it something specifically that you felt where it was kind of an emotional tipping point where you just needed to start something? Was it more of a a practical thing where you just wanted to you you wanted to form something that could help move the ball forward? Like what what was the the motivation at the beginning besides the obvious of of stopping anti-black police violence? What what specifically made that? Uh, th- those two shootings you mentioned, the the tipping point for yourself. Um, honestly, I think it was probably all that. But when I saw the Alton Sterling video, like it was on CNN, you know, I was already upset. But then I went on YouTube and there was like an extended, unedited version. That was crazy. Because mm. I don't care what people, like what side you are on politically, that video showed them working out their alibi, at least one of the officers working out their alibi when they were shouting, oh, he has a gun or we need to get the gun. But you could see that they were pinning him down. And it was almost like they needed this audio to create this narrative of of a struggle when really they had, he was powerless the whole time. Mm. And then he got shot. And I 
cried. Like I was just crying and I was like, what is going on? So feeling that, then waking up and seeing Philando Castile was murdered and then that was going everywhere. Literally murdered for, for obeying what the officer said. And then you learn about the fact that he left the daughter behind. Then you learn he left his girlfriend behind. You learn that he was someone that was trying to make change his community. He was a man, an honest working man that was a, a lunch, uh, you know, server at a local school and like all these things. Mm. You're just like this. Mm. And then I started thinking like, this can happen to really anyone. Like this really can happen to anyone. And I just felt like I, at that point, I wasn't like, I need to start an organization. I said, I just need to just get this out and say something. And then Mm. the organization started. But why I wanted to do that was I think at that point I was like, if we can get the community even though we act like we are a very, very inclusive town, we're not really inclusive. All because we have diversity here doesn't mean we have we hang out with each other or that we mm. talk with each other. So I was like, people need to just get to know people because what if those police officers knew Alton Sterling? Like they really policed the community, but they did events maybe to get to know the community and they all and like the gas station manager there said Alton was always out there many days always selling CDs mm. and so if the community officer or the officers got to know the community where they might have known Alton so when someone made a call like oh there's a there's a man out here and I don't know what he's up to they would have drove up perhaps and saw oh it's just Alton we can just yeah. easily you know and, or the same with Philando. You don't like, I'm like, people don't even know who they're policing. We don't even know who are policing us. And so mm. I wanted to make bridge that gap. And yeah, so, it's, yeah, it's it's interesting what you said, your observation about Columbus being a diverse place on paper, but people not really mixing together. Um, I've, I've thought this about New York City because I live in Brooklyn. Obviously, most people think of that as an extension of New York. Unless you actually live in Brooklyn, then people are like, I, I'm not from Manhattan. I'm in Brooklyn. But if you just if you put that together, a lot of people who are outside New York think of it as this incredibly diverse place, which it is. There's eight million people of all different races, backgrounds, ethnicities, and the subway is the most diverse place in the city because everyone gets on the subway. But in a lot of ways, when you people get off, a lot of things are separated, like the finance district, Chinatown, Ukrainian district. Like there's there's a there's a lot of walls. There's a lot of these mm-hmm. kind of imagined borders and some of them not imagined when you're literally going into a different part of town, which is great because it allows you to go in and be like, all right, this is Chinatown. Like this is this is this district. Um but just because you have a lot of different people in the same place packed into this super tight square mileage, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting a whole ton of interaction with people from different backgrounds. It just means that you're going to cross paths at some point. But it it's not it, it doesn't mean that you're going to live life in a way where you're truly getting the perspectives unless you go to seek it out. Um, exactly. Yeah. So there's still a lot yeah. of barriers for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love Brooklyn. Brooklyn's like the best. Best sign. Best sign. What up? No, I'm kidding. Um, Shout that's out very best true. All because you stand next to someone of a different ethnicity doesn't mean you know them. Like all because you see them doesn't mean you know them. So 
that was a lot of that happening in Columbus. And it's not to say you weren't pleasant with people, but it's to say that there wasn't a lot of, we could say organizational relationships. There was a black mm. organization. There was a Hispanic organization. There's an Asian organization. There's this polit different political parties. But did we all emerge ever? No. <laughs> mm. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, al it's also crazy how the same video of someone getting shot, the same extended cut, whatever you want to call it, the actual version, eight different outlets can pick that up and you'll see eight different versions of the same exact video. And you can edit and paste and trim to fit however you want to tell that story. And so mm -hmm. there are a lot of time, like even when you see something on video, now I always think, okay, I want to see the original version. I, I don't want to see the version with the, the CNN logo or the NBC Fox logo in the bottom right-hand corner. I want to go on YouTube and find the full version of this because I know that whoever shared this has some sort of incentive. And it doesn't mean it's a, a malvolent incentive, but it, it mm -hmm. gives that person an opportunity to change what's being seen. And so it's it's just mm -hmm. such a environment that's rife for editing the perspective that you want other people to see. Exactly. To be honest, I think doing Black Lives Matter and then not just doing the work in my city, but then collaborating with other cities and just paying more close attention to the news and politics and everything um, and how things are shared. I, I did see that a lot. And I think that probably really incited my curiosity to pursue journalism. Mm. So, and then I did. And I will say, <laughs> I learned, a, I mean, I learned a lot, obviously, in, mm. in getting my master's. But I also learned how easily the media can manipulate by one word, mm. by one edit, by one clip. By It's insane. So... Knowing all that knowledge, I try to share it in various various ways with the work I do. So mm. it's overwhelming, so, though, because it's yeah, no, it, it uh, for sure. It it sounds like it. I, I can't imagine. So around this time, when you're starting Black Lives Matter, and these shootings seem like they're happening left and right every other day, there's a new black person getting killed by police. Did you yourself, as a black person, feel a heightened level of anxiety on a day-to-day -day basis or police interactions? And if you did, could you talk a little bit about what that felt like? Because when I'm in the car as a just a white dude, like I literally feel sometimes like I'm in that Dave Chappelle skit where I'm chip in the car and I can just like toss a blunt out the window and everything's going to be fine as long as I'm, you know, generally there, as long as I'm acting fine was was there an added layer of anxiety that you were experiencing around that time or still experiencing um yeah <laughs> and that's it P full stop no i'm kidding um yes so i will say before black lives matter doing it i had an anxiety of whenever i got stopped i felt like i did something more wrong than probably what i was stopped for already like if mm. I was speeding or perhaps I was like, okay, speeding or maybe my lights out. I always felt like it was something more. So, you know, I just not even think you do. You're like, okay, stand straight, put the two on two, make sure they see. Like, and, it's, and then they let you go and it's whatever. But that initial anxiety was there. Now, after when I was doing BLM, oh yeah, skyrocketed. One, because I'm constantly, one, being 
bombarded by messages of people sending me different like videos of other black people dying here. Did you see this? Did you see this? Did you see this article? Did... And then also I'm consuming it on my own right, making sure I'm up to date. Um, but that consumption yeah. is unhealthy. It's like, yeah, that's so... exactly what I want to see before I go out at night in the oh, city. It's just a barrage yes. of people getting murdered who look like me. That's exactly. good for the, uh, that's good for the anxiety. But exactly. But I knew it. They're trying to just be like, showing their aware, just like making sure if I overlook something or what, I understood why they're doing it. And at first it was whatever, but then I kind of had to make an announcement to, for people to stop doing that. Um, but the intake of that heightened my anxiety to tw- like 20,000 fold. I remember this one incident and perhaps it happened exactly the way I remembered, or maybe it was because I was already paranoid, very paranoid. Mm. But also for another layer, not just because of all the stuff happening, but because I'm in a small town and most everyone knew I was the leader of this BLM. And this was during the time where BLM was not trendy to do. This is mm. when we were, we were being called terrorist organization. This is when. This even is before the people, Nike commercials. Exactly. Nike, like Nike was just saying, like, please don't do it, to, yeah. you know, instead of just do it. But like. You know, it wasn't even just the white community in our in our city. There's you know some black people, other people of color that were asking us to change our name, to, like a lot of things. So in the beginning, you know that was that was happening. But with this incident, this I remember getting stopped, and this is probably a year into mm. BLM. I remember getting stopped. You said you're in a small town. Columbus is small. It's like okay, this is in Columbus. Okay. Yeah, like 45,000, maybe. And there's 1,800 black people. So you can do the math. Okay. And I know all 1,800. <laughs> a lot, a lot, there's right. a, a lot of, uh, a, a sunscreen store would do very well in Columbus. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, uh, I remember getting stopped and I was at this red light and I saw this police officer behind me. And at this point, nothing had happened. He just stopped. And it looked like he was doing, so. Like I could see in my rear view mirror and it looked like he was looking at my license plate. And I was just like, kind of like laughing in my head, like, okay, do what you got to do. There's nothing there. And then I just remember him smiling. I saw him smiling. So then I pull off because it went, it was green. And mm. then I purposely just made, I just got in this lane. And when I got in the lane, he pulled me over and I'm like, I didn't, I did nothing. Mm. I did not. So then I'm thinking, oh, now I'm. I'm filling in things that might not be true, right? I'm thinking, oh, he he did this. He found out I was Brittany King, Black Lives Matter. Oh, that's why he stopped, like, all this stuff. So what did I do? I take out my my camera, and I start filming him. And I'm like, I'm filming you, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, that's fine. But you were speeding back there. I'm like, when? I wasn't speeding. Mm. I was like, I don't remember when I was speeding. Can you tell me where? Um, I was like, then why did you stop me back then? Why you when you said when... When you said when, was it a confrontational when? Because that's the attitude that I have. Oh, I'm I like, probably when, did. I'm like, when was I speeding? I, I probably Like, tell did. me, like, do something to me right now. Um, I, I, I kind of was like, when? 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 Yeah. Kind of like that, you know? And he was, you know, saying it, whatever. And I, he then, you know, gave me a speeding ticket. It was an expensive one. And I then went, I said, I'm going to, you know, take this to court. We could do the whole court thing. He has a, a police officer representing him. I have no one on my side. Um, and he starts explaining the story to the judge. And he's like, yeah, she pulled out her phone and she was doing that. Like all of this stuff that was so 
exaggerated in my mind. And then when I start to try to talk, the judge is like, okay, we heard, I heard enough. Um, Miss King, you're ordered to pay, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, you're not going to hear my side. You know, I was just, I probably had an attitude, right? But I remember mm. going to the bathroom and breaking, like breaking, bawling, just like I did nothing wrong. I have to pay this. Like now I survived. Yes. And, and perhaps the paranoia heightened everything you never know mm. maybe if i had a different tone it wouldn't have gone that way yeah i was gonna but, say does that make it worse that you're like is this oh, just yeah. typical cop bullshit or does this yes. have something to do with race you no know what because you never know and that's the thing see that's one this is when after this time quietly to myself i started to just the f- way i was feeling i knew wasn't right i was like I should not be feeling this. I should, and I'm feeling this because I'm in this. I'm so stressed. I'm consuming all. I'm like, something about this is backwards and weird. And I remember, um, you know, recalling some research that I did a long time ago on the methods of how they kept American or not American at this point, how they um, kept enslaved people during American slavery dependent on their masters because there are so many more enslaved people than masters, but they never revolted except for Nat Turner and and people. Mm. But it was one method that they did was when one enslaved person did something wrong, they would not whip them in isolation. They would whip them in front of everyone. Like they would Mm. use them as a way of, you do something wrong, this is you. And mm. they created this insidious trauma onto everyone else. So I started connecting like, yo, why is it that all of these videos of black, be- black people being killed is so accessible? It's in our face 24-7. It's like, mm. why is this even sh- being able to be shared on Facebook? Why is it when I go on CNN or whatever, I'm seeing the same freaking clip over and over and over. And then I'm getting riled up every time I'm getting like crying. And I keep like, I'm like, there's something here that I feel is on purpose. Mm. So I started just to question how that was, um, you know, governing my reality to where if this was absent, would I feel like this? Not to say I shouldn't know that these things are happening, but if I wasn't bombarded with this every day, would I feel literally like on the defense every second? And it mm. wasn't just police. Someone said something crazy to me. I was ready to just eat. But the thing is, is I, okay, let me rewind. See, I'm getting upset now. Okay. Number one. Yeah. This, this is, I'm just, this well, podcast is just purely to upset you. This is, this is my, uh, you know what? My I'm, just, I'm just trying I'm to, done. I'm just trying to start some shit in the podcasting community. <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna do uh we're gonna there's gonna be a big payoff like a, a boxing match between us this like Jake hilarious. Paul and some other celebrity. Um, we'll we'll start That's the hilarious. podcast uh boxing mixed martial arts. I love that matches. You're like I'm gonna just make her things about the you know Kid Cudi and then I'm just yeah. gonna completely go in. Yeah, um, just start with think? the soft stuff and then just just go in hard. <laughs> but yeah, you. Uh, well, this um, is fun. Um, yo, but no, I just I just uh. The thing is, is I do believe in like non nonviolence and everything. Like I, I believe King had it right, Martin Luther King. Mm. So no, I wouldn't be popping off at everyone. But if I felt I, I would do it in a way that maybe wasn't the best way. Like if someone asked mm. a question that I felt like they could literally find on Google, 
You know, I'd be like, you know, better if you might Google that or whatever. And then I start thinking, like, is that right, though? <laughs> I'm like, if mm. someone's coming to me to get information that they really don't know, should I be telling them to Google it? Because that's pretty condescending. Mm. I, I start yeah. thinking, now what? I wasn't saying this out loud because I knew a lot of other people were doing it, but I'm thinking, I don't think this works. It makes I don't sense. Think it, this works. it makes sense, though, because if you're, if you are constantly subjected to a barrage of videos or audio clips or a combination of both of something that is a possibility that may happen to you and you become aware of it. The question is, how many more videos do you need to watch or or how how is watching these videos benefiting the way that you are going to live a safe and fulfilling life after you're already aware of the possibility that it's going to happen? And I, and I don't know what that's like to watch, you know, videos of people getting murdered that are black because they don't look like me. Like as a black person, I'll never know what it's like to, to watch that. But my dad actually does something to me when I travel or I'm doing something that's relatively risky, but more just risky for my parents because everyone has different risk tolerances. I'll do some, I'll go snowboarding or I went down to Colombia in South America this past year. And something my dad always does, whether he realizes he's doing it or not, is he heightens my anxiety because he will think he's doing me a favor by sending me the most horrific news that happens in that region. And he's like, watch out, you know, four <laughs> tourists got their heads chopped off by the Colombian cartel in this jungle. It's, it's you know, it's 250 miles away Dang, from you. Or uh, this, uh, you know, four uh, snowmobilers just killed an avalanche two miles away from where you're staying. And I'm like, oh I'm gosh. aware that this is a possibility. <laughs> Like I'm already aware this is a possibility and and I know my dad is simply doing it out of some anxiety within himself to exactly. share in it like with me because he's you. yeah he's like worried about it. I'm already aware of the, these possibilities. I'm aware that even though the cartel is nowhere near the height of its power, that it still exists in Colombia. I'm aware that people die in avalanches. I don't need, you know, 14 articles about this before I go somewhere. At, at that point, it's taking away from my experience. So if I was going to compare watching black people get murdered unjustly as a black person to something in my life that I could relate to, that would be the closest thing I can think of is mm -hmm. your my dad sending me articles of shit that statistically is improbable, but like it comes from a good place of him trying to make me aware. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's a related connection. And with that, when I really saw it was unnecessary for me to see these murders, like to see the videos. It was so unnecessary. Hmm. Um, I could read an article and understand it. Like I saw enough. And I and I made an announcement, I think at almost when I was leaving, I told everyone, I don't, I'm, I'm choosing never to watch a video like that again. I'm asking people to stop sending me that. Um, hmm. And I said, it actually, I think is inversely normalizing black death to people to constantly see hmm. us dying. And I honestly, and I don't want to see it ever. And I have never watched a video. I've never watched George Floyd. I've never, I've never watched it. I don't need, like the George Floyd thing was disgusting. I didn't need to see him actually dying to know it is mm. disgusting. Like I didn't need to see it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I will never watch a video like that. I'll never mm. watch anyone dying because I don't need to see death. It's no. The, the definitely don't check your phone for the message I just sent you for this next question. No, I'm I'm just kidding. 
I really thought my phone like, oh no, he did not. <laughs> yeah, oh, just, no, just a, compi- a compilation. Um, but 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 going going back, yeah, it's like some mm-hmm. sick, uh, twisted uh, self hate thing. But going back to the the anxiety in front of cops, I'll I'll go out on a limb and say that if you were to average the amount of anxiety of black people and minorities versus the average anxiety that white people experience with cop interactions, the black people minorities are higher, probably. Like, I don't have evidence to support that, but it, it, it seems like it's certainly in this society. And the first time I truly experienced one of my friends who's, uh, he's half Puerto Rican, half Lebanese, used to teach me Muay Thai until he left to California. I won't say his name because he's he enlisted in the army and I don't know if he's going to get in trouble for this, but he's like a very badass, could kick the shit out of me when we would spar. He's going like 40% and I'm going 100% and he's still just like dodging everything and blocking everything that I'm doing. And we were walking away from the park by my apartment in Brooklyn and we passed a few police officers that were standing outside of the the F stop by my house, the subway station. Mm-hmm. And I was like joking. We were joking about something at the time that was related to weed. Like we were talking about smoking weed, doing mushrooms, like doing something like that. And I was joking very close to the cops. And he like hit me in the ribs like pretty fucking hard. And it was like, yo, shut the fuck up. Like didn't mm-hmm. want anything to do with that in front of the cops, you know, dark brown skin uh half latino half middle eastern like the cops can make him look like whatever they want and in their own head and that was the first time as a white person where i was like i truly was like taken aback in that moment and i thought wow like this is what it feels like to not be white in front of cops in this instance like everyone's experience is different but like I would never think twice about making a joke about smoking weed if a cop was near me because I'd just be like, I don't have shit on me. Like, what is, you know, what are they going to do? And then he was in that moment, I don't want to say afraid, but was like, I don't want any trouble. Shut the fuck up. Let's walk, you know, get further away. And then we can start talking about what we're talking about. So to me, it was just interesting. Mm-hmm. And and the the incident that you're talking about reminded me of it. Mm-hmm. I understand exactly his his punch there to you because it's like yeah we don't have anything we're seemingly innocent but that little thing can have this narrative of why they're going to search me maybe not even Mm. you they might search him they just need some reason like oh no you said you had weed let me see and then they can just mess around with him and you don't know how that would escalate um yeah with yes i understand that 100 percent. i would have punched you too yeah no, no. I mean, he he explained. He was like, "Yeah, it's just it's different." And we actually spoke. Uh, we spoke about that the next session we were training, and it was really interesting to hear his opinion. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of that Dave Chappelle skit where Dave's in the car with his friend Chip, and or and no, they're on the street corner and they're trying to get directions, and Dave's with his friend he's like oh, i don't know where we're going should we ask someone and i'm just paraphrasing the joke and chip's like i'll i'll go ask the cops i'll I'll go you know figure out what we're doing and dave's like no 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 like what are you doing what are you doing? and and chip walks up to the cops and he's like i'm a little high where's third street <laughs> and yeah the that cop wasn't is- <laughs> killing me softly right yeah yeah 
Yeah. And, and the cop's just yes. like, there's uh, there's Third Street. It, it's fine. And, you know, the the whole joke is that he's just fascinated with the way that his friend's able to just walk up and admit he's high to the cops and ask for directions. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I love, and that just speaks to Dave's brilliance because he, he, he talked about the, actually kind of what happened with you and your friend and he like has this joke to showcase that in a way where you can get it, you're laughing, but then when it sinks in, you're like, dang, that is true. Mm. Like, what if like could a black person be like, I'm high, can I you direct me to the street? Who knows? Probably not. Um, but yeah. They'll they'll direct you to this they'll direct you to the, to the, the street under your feet, uh, very swiftly. <laughs> yeah, they'd be like, You can get in the back of the car. Yeah, yeah. Like, Hurry up. Um go, yeah. going back to to BLM. How did you see the organization change as a whole from what you were observing while you were still a part of BLM in the, in the organization and even after keeping tabs on it? How, how did you see the organization evolve strategically, media-wise with messaging and things like that? What was that evolution like from your perspective? Well, funny enough, I think when... And I've, and I've talked about this on another podcast, but the, to me, the most organic stage of BLM was like 2013 to the middle, to the, to like 2017, let's say. Mm. Um, and this was actually during the time it was really difficult to say that you were a part of the BLM. But I think that's why it was more on a mission of, of objectives of, you know, investing into community, divesting in things that aren't helping the community, anti-police violence, like just objectively fundamental changes that should happen that I think all Americans would be like, yeah, we'll get on this. Then as I think when it got popularized and trendy, people started being a part of the helm of BLM and direction. And it's like maybe a business here or an organization here would pour into BLM fun wise. And then they might be like, Oh, can you guys also talk about this? Or can you guys all, like have these other initiatives and then muddying the waters of what BLM was doing. And then I saw the cultural conversation different. And this is when in 2018 is when I really was like, I don't know if I recognize what's going on here or if any of this is actually going to help the black community. Um, so certain things that was, that was going on that were very popular narratives was white silence is violence. And that in conversations when we're talking about race or social issues, you know, white people need to be silent. Like people call their need to talk. You need to not talk, nothing, you know, do the work, stuff like that. And I started mm. thinking like, like logically making sense of these. I'm like, does this make sense? Because when we, so at a protest, we want people, their silence is violence. So we want them just to scream out a name or say Black Lives Matter, say their names. But then when we go in these rooms to talk about racism and talk about what's happening nationally or locally, we don't want them to talk or, and if they do ask a question or if they do get emotional or if they do want to be a part of the discussion, they're centering themselves. It's white fragility. It's white tears. It's like all this stuff. And I start thinking like, but low key, like the, they're, they should be a part of the conversation because the racism is not just something that only involves minorities. It involves everybody. So they need to be mm. talking with us to, uh, to, for us to understand what's going on here and how to make a change. And, if we want equality 
And if we want um, to have this reconciliation, we can't do that with a whole group of people being silent and never being able to express how they feel. Mm. Or like you have to at least let people talk and you can challenge what they're saying. But to say you can't speak because of your color is exactly what people said to us. And I was just thinking like, okay, I think this is backfiring on the mission. I don't think this is helping. And also I was seeing is actually creating an escapism for people to do this performative allyship. Like it's just, just go to the events and, and be there for us. And people will be like, all right. And they take their Instagram picture and they post it, deuces, and that's it. But, mm. and, and then I would get upset by that. But then again, it's almost like people either, even if it was just for their ego or if they're really earnest and like, I want to make change, people want to showcase like, I'm not trying to be a part of the problem. So if they're like, I can't have this conversation and tell and and express myself, then I got to show it somehow. So people then are going to post themselves somewhere because they want to see like, see, I'm good too. Like I'm doing, I I don't want to, you know? So I just saw how all of this just wasn't making sense. Um, And then I went to NYU and then I started on like an academic level, I guess you could say, looking at the race conversation happening and examining that um, and then making essays and articles and stuff in grad school and out of grad school. But the most authentic stage was when there was something to lose if you were doing BLM. It was like people really were doing that for a real cause. And then when it got trendy, it was like those people are still there. And now a lot of other people are like, oh, it's cool to be in BLM. All right, cool. Mm. Bet. Here I am. Jeez. And these people are there for maybe that day. But it was like this flood of people just coming in and kind of co-opting the whole thing. And now I'm seeing Netflix with BLM on their thing. And I'm seeing all this stuff. And I'm like, what is like, this is so bizarre. And then I'm seeing like actual like, like dead people on people's shirts. Like, I don't know who was the first one, but like, you know, Tamar Rice or, Mm. or you know, Sandra or um, Trayvon Martin, like these people being on people's shirts that were being bought. And and it, it was just weird. I'm like, why is mm. Black Death being like on merchandise? Like, mm. and then you're saying capitalism yeah, like sensationalized. is a problem. Yeah, sensationalized. And you're saying capitalism is a problem, but then you're selling shirts of Black Death. I mean, that's really what you're doing. And then the money isn't going back to the families. I mean, it's going to you. It's so weird. And so I, I started just questioning BLM. Big question mark. Then in 2020, my mind shifted when I saw mm. that the protests weren't just happening for a week. Cause usually that's how long protests were happening. I'm like, Oh wow. It's like two weeks, three, a month, two. Oh wow. It's in like Japan. It's in Germany. Like it was jumping abroad. Mm. And I was like, this actually might be a change here. Like this is crazy. But then certain things were happening where I'm like, maybe not. Um, I remember 2020 in Portland or Washington, D.C., one of the two, there was a BLM that actually mostly made up of, of white allies. I say mm. how allies vary like this. Yeah. And they were wearing like Black Lives Matter shirts and they were marching downtown. And this is, you know, during the pandemic. So people were eating outside and they were destroying 
and stuff. They're like, put your hands up and say Black Lives Matter now or you'll be a white or you're a white supremacist. And and if people wouldn't do it, they'd be in their faces chanting Black Lives Matter and telling them to put their hands up. And I'm thinking, there's two things there. I don't want anyone to be forced to like me. I don't care. Like, I don't want anyone to be forced to say I matter. I don't mm-hmm. want that to be mandated because that's not real. It's fake. And two... You aren't allies doing this because in the news, when they say a Black Lives Matter group destroyed a whole restaurant's, Mm. you know, location, people are automatically going to think it was black people. Mm. And most of these people I saw were white. So I was I was pissed, to say the least. But I was thinking, okay, Black Lives Matter, the national BLM will say something for sure. We go by nothing. And I'm like, what the? Why aren't you guys? denouncing this yeah yeah uh, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there and i'll i'll start by saying as an outsider to the the actual blm organization i wasn't in you know wasn't in the organization didn't go to rallies i support the flourishing and the betterment of black people's lives and you know people's lives in general but I was I was not part of the BLM movement, but I would see chatter online. I'd see chatter on Twitter, YouTube, just, you know, scrolling shit like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's impossible to ignore. And I don't think it should be ignored. And from a human being perspective, it's good to have your finger on the pulse of what's going on out there and how to react and respond to people. And as a content creator, it's also good to be able to have conversations and understand where other people are coming from. And mm-hmm. I remember feeling back around 20, you know, 15, 2016 timeline, uh, right when I started podcasting and sort of paying attention to the to the movement, I it, it seemed like things were much more consolidated into we are against anti-black violence of police and anti-black violence in general. And a lot of the messaging I was seeing was around that sentiment how are we going to prevent black people from getting killed by police and then as time went on it seemed like the lines got blurred to where i was confused exactly what the primary cause or primary causes of blm was socially uh financially um strategically it was but, you know, hearing things like the the money from the national chapters is not being given to local chapters, seeing different mm-hmm. things about strategies and, and things that have nothing to do with anti-black police violence, um, like the the silence equals violence, things like that. And then along those lines, once it became more popular, which is also when I saw the lines start to get more blurred as to what the true mission was these corporations started coming in and my first thought was okay if wall street if if nike like all these big corporations that have a shit ton of money and their own interests at hand if they're all going full in on black lives matter what is the ulterior motive here and i'm not smart enough i don't have the resources to actually dig to the bottom of that but i was thinking you know like what sort of protection are they after why are they all of a sudden choosing to get in now why not back in 2013 you know why not before the movement started why not start a movement of their own what what is behind all this money being pumped into black lives matter and yes there are 
a lot of people that want to do good things with that money, but I, they're also you can't deny the corporate interests at in uh, in the mix of people who want to throw up that flag and signal that I am in support of this, which does two things: it gets your attention, but it also distracts you from something else. So my head automatically went to like, what do these corporations want to distract from? Where what's like this hand waving kind mm. of uh, I, what do you call it? Like, uh, just, I can't think of the word, but kind of like waving over here to distract from what's going on in another spot yeah. because you're, you're not really able to pay attention to two things at once. Mm-hmm. And then with all the social media stuff, when, when it started to become more, more popular, not just at the corporate level, but at the, the private level, which is the, the person to person individual level, which is probably what drove the corporations to start pumping millions and billions of dollars into BLM on an individual level, it's never been easier to craft the perspective of how you want others to view you, where you can post something, you can post yourself at a rally, or you can post a quote, you can post like, and I do this with podcasting. Yeah, yeah, black box. Like I, I struggle with this in podcasting because I want to appear professional and legit as a podcaster with the posts, with the images that I put out for each episode and as a whole. And sometimes I get caught up in it too much where I'm like, is my goal to seem like a great podcaster or is my goal to make good podcasts? Which one is more important? And if I worry too much about the the image of the podcast, the actual podcast suffers, but the image of the podcast is certainly important, important. as well. Yeah. So it's just... All of those things, the, the corporatization of BLM, the, the individual manipulation with social media and algorithms around BLM, and also just the lines getting blurred, it was very difficult to get a feel for what the organization was. Like if you were to give a, a one or two cents elevator pitch on this is who we are and what we do, that started for me to get really hard to do when I would ask myself, like, what is this? Like, what is this movement? I know what it started as. I know what I support. Does what I support align with what this movement is now? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly what I was observing. And I, I want to ask this. Do you remember, I think it was like 2016 when people started wearing those safety pins? Do you remember yeah, that? Ki- yeah, kind like of. Allies. I forget specifically what it was. It, it was uh, an allyship thing. It was an allyship thing. So it was more so, I guess you could say, white pe- putting in layman's terms, white people wearing these safety pins during the time where the inception of BLM and when like um, things start to be more vocal about like anti-police and these safety pins people would wear to show like, I'm an ally. And it was more an, an image thing. Not to say that they weren't willing to do something, but it was just like, I'm an ally. And that's why I felt yeah. like, Black Lives Matter turned into when it started to come trendy. It just became a safety pin for organizations or big businesses to put on their figurative wall, so to speak, or advertisements just to safety pin themselves from cancel culture, from being called out. Also, because BLM was trendy, it was lucrative. So people would actually Mm. get a lot more business. Netflix might get more subscriptions because they have BLM on the face of their main page, but Hulu doesn't. So I'm going to go to Netflix now. 
Or, you know, even L'Oreal was saying something. And I'm like, not to say you shouldn't say something. There's a fine line between authentically saying things and then literally just putting BLM on your thing and like mm. having this generic little quote saying like, we support black. Like, but then, okay, cool. But what are you doing like with your funds to fundamentally support? But then again, what they would do is they would give to the global BLM and then now BLM the global, you know, organization has 60 plus or $90 million at this point, And which people are upset about it on both of the aisles of the political spectrum. But a lot of people like chapters were calling them out like far before mm. now, like, like at the local whole, level. Yes. Uh, there was a New York times, I believe it was New York times piece where 10 chapters from different cities came together and wrote an open letter to the national BLM asking where the funds they're like, mm. there's homeless people still in our cities. We still need to restock our food pantries. We still need to do this. And you guys have not given us nothing. We've been chapters for years and I, we not heard anything from the leadership who's leading yeah. and where, where is the funds going to? Um, they started that conversation and then now it's more popular and now we kind of that's been exposed. But um, yeah. yeah, I think the the cap getting blown off that was the six million dollar house that was purchased on behalf of BLM out in L.A. or six million, wherever it was, mm-hmm. which could like, again, I don't know all the, the details behind that. I'm all for having a party house. Like if I had the budget. And I could dedicate part of my budget to having a base where people could just go have fun, get away, like network, shit like that. And also hold up my end of the bargain with what I'm saying to people is the mission of my organization. 100% like go fucking like buy a house, party, have a base and then like also do the other shit. But it didn't look good, especially at that time. Like, I was like, yeah, like, this could be bullshit, but, like, the optics are just not great, especially with all this other stuff coming out to have this as an investment. Yeah, and it didn't look good on so many levels. This was during the time where the families of the Black lives that were lost were actually coming out and being more vocal. Hold on a sec. Let me... My computer's like, um, I'm about to die. Oh, yeah, go um, ahead. But there was, um, I believe, Tamar Rice's mother, Mike Brown's father, and a few other people were talking about how they have not received, like, they received support, like, right around the time their family member died, and it seemed like these people were utilizing them or exploiting them um, you know, from the news circuit. And then when that would leave, they would leave. Um, they mm. also were talking about how it's re-traumatizing to see their loved ones that passed away, like Tamar Rice or Mike Brown or whoever else, like on shirts, on mobilia, in the new, like, and just re-seeing that um, and people making money off of those images, you know, they were being out spoken about that and then people start saying yeah that is wrong or yeah like why aren't people paying attention to you and then like people were saying like this conversation was going on and this didn't really hit the mainstream circuit but um i actually tried to reach out to tamar rice's mother for an interview but she was bombarded you know Mm -hmm. but uh yeah like there was so much going on there and it's and we could be clear about this and it was patrice kohler is one of the organizers who had the six million dollar home but she, okay, yes, she has written books and she sold books. So who knows how mm. much money was poured in there. But 
when $90 million seems like it's not being touched to help anyone, but then we then... And we're questioning that. And then we see, okay, here's a $6 million house and here's another million dollars. Then yes, you're, you're creating a horrible narrative of, okay, you're hoarding the money and you're using it for your leisure. It doesn't mm. look good at all. And there wasn't to me a really good explanation in my eyes. Mm. Um, especially, never mind. I'm gonna, go I'm gonna ask you a very loaded question and impossible to answer. So. Mm-hmm. With your, uh, you know, y- you were once a part of BLM, you've written about racial issues, um, you know, someone who has their finger much more on the pulse from a, a creative standpoint, like being able to speak and write about things that are going on in America within that vein. How racist is America today? <laughs> Because there's, you could find any answer you want. You could find zero. You could find 120%. With what you've seen and experienced and uh, trying to answer uh, this impossible, probably stupid question, how racist would you say America is at the moment? So thank you for preparing me, saying it's loaded. Because it is. I don't know if I can describe america's racism based on my own experience i will of say course this. of course i will say this when people say america is racist america you can look at it this way america is racist america is beautiful america is um has this exceptionalism to it america is one of the greatest countries live in america like all of these things america actually is america will always have racism. That's it. Mm. Full stop. That's what we will have. Now, to say America is the same level of racism, say what my ancestors had to go through American slavery, no. Same amount of racism even during the Jim Crow era. One could debate that and say it's just it's more covert. But I would say for mm. me, I can't compare my experience to my father. So what he has told me, I can't say, yeah, sounds the same. No, it doesn't. I'm not mm. at all. Um, I deal with racism, but it's not every day. But I think on YouTube and like being a content creator is different because you're, you can get it anywhere from anywhere in the world, really. Mm. Now, day to day, no, I don't experience it every day. But here's the thing. And I talked about this on a podcast and actually this moment for, and it was viewed a lot, like over a hundred thousand times on someone else's podcast. And, um, sometimes even if something, isn't racist like objectively you can't call it sometimes because you have dealt with it for so long like you you know it's there and you've dealt with it and you know Mm. how it can look sometimes you don't know it's subjective you're like is this because i'm black or is it because they actually didn't see me sitting here like am i waiting here because they're just ignoring me because i'm black or is it because they simply Mm. didn't see me are they following me around in the store because i'm black or is it because i'm young looking are they like all this thing now? And some people might be like, see, well, you shouldn't be thinking about race. And, you know, it's really easy to say that when you're not black. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. And I know I, I've definitely sobered up to certain things that I don't think is true anymore about America. But to say, um, you know, racism, like America is racist, but that's not all we are. And also we're not as racist. So. I know that question was asked on uh, a lot. It's hard to it's hard to quantify 
how racist we are, but we, it's here. We just, we've seen countless times still with people killing people because of their skin color. We just saw mm. this happening in a market. Like a man, like an 18 year old man, and they love to say kid, he's a man, or even 20, I don't know, traveled to find an urban city to kill black people. That's exactly what he did. Mm. He wanted to start a race war, just how Dylan Roof wanted to start one. So one thing I cannot stand is when we have these conversations is people putting it on the people who talk about race or, or say, like, talk about their experience and say, you know, um, try to dilute that and downplay that and act like, but you, are you not aware of what's actually going on? Yeah, there's not a shooting every day, but almost every year there is a racial type shooting. There mm. is. And not acknowledging that people won't acknowledge that. And that's one thing I cannot stand. And I just said, I can't, I can't stand a lot of things, obviously, but when people want to talk about Same. BLM and how, it's trash and all this stuff. And I want to have their commentary on that. But then I see these same people not saying a dang thing about these shootings. You're not talking about what just happened to these black people that died or these black people in the church. You're not saying nothing there. But you want to talk about how BLM is dividing people. But you won't talk about how these 18-year-old white boys go on the internet and get incentivized to think that because their skin is white, they have pride and they're going to be, um, people are trying to like take the minorities are trying to take over the country and they're trying to like mm. get rid of the right race and they got to fight for their pride. And all this is out there on the internet. This isn't just, it's, but no one wants to have that conversation. Mm. No one wants to go there too, but they want to talk about BLM, but they won't be talking about what could be happening in their own home with their six year old kid getting, you know, radicalized by a group of men that are telling them that, you know, bright pride and race pride and blah, blah, blah. They're mm. talking about race with your child in the most disgusting way. Yeah. But then you're just going to have a conversation just about BLM. Have the conversation there, but also let's not be blind and ignorant to the fact that racism is here. Like, but the thing yeah. is, we can't also, to me, I, I used to say, let's end racism. Listen, and that is a, is a noble goal, but that's not real. You can also say, let's end murder. That's, yeah. That's not well, what is, what is, what is real? You mentioned hatred. No matter how divided we become by race or sex or whatever, we will always be united in our hatred of similar things. That hatred is a, a, a common theme that runs through the blood of, of uh every person we all have the things that we hate um yes. but on a like on a, a serious note y you mentioned those tense moments where something could be racism or degree of racism or it could be something internalized where you are thinking something that it's not or maybe a combination of both is there a, a specific moment that sticks out to you where there was some sort of experience like that where you're like is this racist like is it not because to me as a white person like that seems like the most uh common thing that we don't talk about we talk about racism all the time and when we have concrete evidence of racism but what it seems like a lot of people 
experience, um, especially people who aren't white, are those incidents where like you're not quite sure it could be, it couldn't be, but like that anxiety in you, that anger, whatever it is, affects the way that you go about your day, the way that you go about that interaction. And it seems like that's happening much more where you, you don't have a definitive answer to something. Is there an incident that sticks out to you like that, either something that happened recently or um, just uh, anything anything in particular where you kind of felt that on the fence this could go either way? Um, yeah, there's a lot. Okay, so there's there's sometimes where I've, I've gotten it where it's overt, where I literally... I mean, a self a self-proclaimed white supremacist. He said he was. Um, you know, call drew a picture of me being lynched. So I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is Jesus. Um, and it was like, where was where was that? Oh, he he just sent it to me. And and the thing is, is he took us. The the image was from me. Um, on doing an interview that was on TV. So he somehow grabbed this still either on the internet if it was on YouTube and made a and used that still to draw this race racist character caricature of me like he 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 colored in my skin darker he made my lips bright red bigger he made my eyes bulging and then he had this like storyboard like four little things and it just showed him luring me into like this warehouse with a bucket of chicken and him Jesus this last one and he Jesus. said yeah he was like uh the message was you know he said lynch yourself you in word black lives don't matter so this was like during this like probably 2018 so Um, this guy this guy didn't just do something racist to you and obscene he used his creativity that could have been used in a lot of other ways he creatively amplified his racism through storyboard artwork to send you a racist message i'm sure it's still on the internet it went pretty viral um, but that guy, so that guy, that, uh, had, uh, you know, a very racist art teacher along the way. Some, something, uh, they were like, something... now you want to draw the lips like this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to be honest, I don't like, I don't even think about that now because he has no power. Like, I don't even think about that until I'm like, if, if I'm in a podcast and someone might ask that question, I'm like, oh yeah, there, I have an example of racism, but, but subjective stuff happens but you never get to the bottom of it unless you ask them was that racist or you know or is it because i'm black unless you ask but there's been times where um yeah i don't think that guy could give a description that could unracist himself yeah i didn't think i need to clarify (laughs) i kind of got it i was like "Mm, i understand um thank you uh so (laughs) like a like emoji fire um (laughs) yeah fire fuck you that was great Thank you so much. Um, but, like, I just remember a lot of times going into, like, diners that were in surrounding cities of Columbus that where we might not be living. And deaf, I mean, the stairs would be crazy to where, see, my dad is like, mm. like, I have the personality of my dad. So... My dad might not say some, but he like to them, but he might he'll look at you, like if you're staring at him and he and he feels like you're trying to be intimidating, he will then stare back, you know. Um yeah. but my mom is very, you know, more calm and you know so if my mom gets a feeling, I know it is the thing, and she would think like, What are these people looking at? Like and and it was definitely because they're like there's all there's 
no black people really in the city and then they see us and then maybe looking at us all crazy who knows there was this time and it, dang it, i just forgot it oh something happened actually when i was this is when i kind of during the 2020 2021 mm-hmm. i was visiting my parents and they live in the suburbs and i was walking this this you know trail that i always not a trail but this like route that i would always take so i knew exactly where i was going you know and I remember walking and I saw this truck pulling out so fast out of their driveway. And it literally, he, this is me and this is the truck, like almost hitting me. Jeez. And I, you know, and, and I, and I like to, I am Christian, but man, I ripped my, my Beats headphones off so fast and I started, I was like, watch out, like, you know, yelling. Yeah. And I look inside. <laughs> yeah. And I look inside. And I see it's it's two older older people and they're laughing and they're like <laughs> laughing like that and I'm like yeah. I was so mad right I'm thinking oh they did that because you know uh, I'm black or whatever right so I'm I'm using this example to show that sometimes you could be wrong but the other times that has happened to me when I'm followed around I can tell even if it's not because I'm black the way you're following me around the store is rude period mm. right but this instance is one where I got, because I didn't do what I wanted to do, which was go right back around, like maybe an hour later. And when they maybe were back, go to their house and be like, you almost hit me. What's your problem? Right. Mm. The next day I just walked again and I saw the man getting mail the same time I was walking by and he waved me down and I'm like, what does he want? You know? And he came over to me and he was like, were you walking here yesterday? And I'm like, yeah. And then he was like, I'm so sorry that I, I almost hit you. He's like, I, and I, we were shocked. And, and so I don't want you to think like we were laughing at you. I, we were just shocked. We didn't see you at all. And then mm. when we saw you yelling, we were kind of just like, sorry, you know? And mm. I'm like, you know, I appreciate that. Thank you. And for some reason that helped me in a way to kind of brush off other things because I'm like, you know what? Cause when those things happen, even if it is racist, I'm left feeling stirred up. They're fine. I'm the one left feeling some type of way. But mm. something about that made me just like, you never know if it is that. Yeah. Maybe I could be wrong. And I'd rather just let, unless it's something so crazy outlandish, I'm, I've said something before. Like, I'm not afraid to, but if it's something that's so, I'm like, I'm gonna let it go. Because yeah. I'm that. Not- That that level of uncertainty and having having that stirred up feeling being caused by race is something that I've never experienced and may never experience for the rest of my life. And it seems like it's another it's it's like walking around with another layer that you get used to. Like there there are I give people plenty of reasons to be pissed off at me and, you know, sometimes call me an asshole say fuck you whatever like it's new york but in my head i've never wondered like is this because i'm white right now like is this because of like someone's being racist against me that's never been in the mailbag of like me reaching into why this person is calling me a piece of shit but it's also like like when you're walking around with that extra option when your skin color can be a reason for why someone is treating you a way that you don't want to be treated. I imagine 
it kind of just fades into the background with a lot of interactions, but it also, it's still there. It's not like it disappears. It, it's still there. And I, and I imagine it still adds to the anxiety of interactions, to the, to the uncertainty of outcomes and things like that, because for you, that is an option. You can reach in and, and sometimes it will come out like, oh yeah, like mailbag says I'm black for this one. Like that, that's mm-hmm. why it was. That's like, that's always, it's on the table. Exactly. And yeah, it's that it's that layer that's there for most black Americans and it's nothing that we enjoy. People will see the thing is is though the way I see it now is drastically different than before. Like I have matured is not the right word. Sometimes I, I can see past certain things. I think before it was more like face value, this is what's going on. Now I've actually it is more ambiguous because I'm thinking mm-hmm. maybe it could be a lot of other things besides this thing. But definitely you race is still in there, but then I might think, well, maybe because this, this, this before it was a declarative, it's because of that. Mm. Now it's more like so it actually helps with my energy and my peace. You can say that. Um, but it is something that we don't enjoy. So when people are like, oh, they like the victim Olympics, please. I really wish I never thought that. I wish that was never on my plate. I wish I thought, man, they're following me because I'm young or whatever. I wish race wasn't it because you can't, I can't change my color. There's nothing I can do about this. And yeah. I wouldn't do nothing about it. But, and I, I want to say this. When I was talking to, I went on this podcast with, Brett Weinstein and he was telling me how he was in this park and this was during 2020 Mm -hmm. and he said that um there was this family a black family that he saw you know happy doing their thing and he said normally he would have walked by and maybe even said hello you know but he said during that time it was such tension between everyone especially with our um, black americans and white americans that he said it's better safe than sorry i better just go around and not say anything because i don't want them to think i'm a threat i don't want you know and i had this paranoia that they might think i'm something i'm not because of my skin so i just bypassed when two years ago i would have went through i'm like hey how are you yeah. and i said that paranoia that you felt is how we feel. Sometimes we don't know how people see us to them. We don't know. I don't know sometimes how I'm coming across with someone. How he says we're safe and sorry that I don't see. Sometimes I'm not sure. That family could be like thinking that you see them as a threat or, you know. So I was like that paranoia that you felt just because your skin is in that you did not know was true. You just thought could be true. And because you thought it was true, you just did another action. I'm like, that's how we feel. There's times where I will drive by a gas station that I feel if it's in a really, you know, rural area, I'm sorry, I'm not stopping. I don't Mm. because I just don't know. Now, I could be perfectly fine if I go in there. I'm not taking the risk, though. And And I've learned that even with traveling with my parents. We just didn't stop at certain places. They weren't announcing, we're not stopping here, kids, because we're black. No. But when you grow when you grow up in that and then you get older and you start filling in the clues, you're like, dang, that's why we didn't stop there because of this and this and this. Um, so, yeah, it's an unfortunate paranoia that is there. But for me, 
honestly, because I've dived deeper into culture and with journalism and having conversations with with people that I would never have or thought I'd never have, including like Coleman Hughes, including Brett Weinstein and people I would have made assumptions about. I just was like, I have these conversations with these type of people. So now when I'm in the world, Kind, I'm seeing people as individuals than being part of a group that might do something to me or might mm. assume something about me. Yeah, but I can't yeah. say that that isn't ever there. It is. So, yeah. yeah. What what Brett Weinstein's talking about or was talking about on the the podcast that you guys did together? It it sounds like that moment in the park is sort of in line with a joke that Mark Norman tells. Mark Norman's one of my favorite comedians. I had him on the podcast a few months back. And he tells a joke about walking down the sidewalk on the same side of the street as another black guy. But like the black guy actually seems dangerous, like his body language. It's not because he's black. And in his head, he's like, "Okay, would I rather get stabbed or would I rather seem racist? And like his joke was, I'd rather get stabbed than seem racist. Like that was the... He, obviously he tells it you know with, with uh mm-hmm. i'm just paraphrasing the I main punchline of the joke but yeah he's like yeah it's like sometimes you'd rather get stabbed or have something terrible happen to you than the possibility that you want to seem racist or that someone is going to call you out for being racist which i guess mm-hmm. if you're doing something like podcasting or posting you just you have to at least what i try to do is create the best content I can, prepare for it, record it, chop it up, release it. And then I know that by putting out content there in the public space, I am subjecting myself to whatever people want to say, whether it's good or bad or in between. But if there is a reverse paranoia from the perspective of just a white dude, I would say that it's the paranoia that by doing something I'm going to seem like I'm being racist in some way when really there is some evidence for my actions, but people are going to choose not to acknowledge that. They're just going to see that I cross the street with a black dude and, you know, Mm -hmm. be like, oh, Mark Norman's a piece of shit or something or whatever. And, you know, Mm -hmm. not that I have the type of following where someone's going to take a video of me crossing the street, but it, it, it is... If, I'm if, going to. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> every, everyone's everyone's watching at this point anyway. The ca- cameras everywhere. <laughs> but it's like it's just interesting, like people's interactions and social media is and the way uh, corporate media approaches spreading information is so fucked for the way that they prey on these anxieties. But if you have a white guy and a black guy that are trying to have an authentic interaction and the white guy has that sort of paranoia of, oh, I want to say this, but like maybe this person's going to think I'm racist. And the black guy's mm-hmm. like, oh, like, is this person saying this because I'm because he's racist or like, is this me just getting in my own head? Try to have an authentic interaction with that. So it's like all this mind fucking that social media does and and just like this kind of sound bite bullety uh like this is the headline this is what happened and rage and rage and rage like click 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 share 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 it's like i feel like mm-hmm. it all just adds to that and eventually there's going to be a breaking point which has already started to happen where people just, just like say, step I'm away like- and they're just like fuck this like i i want the content i want and i can tune into it on youtube or 
an independent creator, someone that is going to give me the context and not cause me to just like be constantly in this in this paranoid state. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny to talk about the paranoia you feel or as white people feel because I have sensed that, um, but on the opposite end where I might be just be thinking I'm just having a typical conversation with someone that's white, but then we might start talking about nothing too deep, maybe referencing race in there, ethnicity, whatever. And it seems like they're going overboard with showing they're not racist, like <clears throat> quoting Maya Angelou and then going into, and I, like doing extra stuff where I'm like, I know what you're doing. You don't have to do all this. Like, yeah. but when you speak about it, I'm like, okay, so they just, there's a paranoia, which I've heard this, a paranoia of people are like, I don't want them to think I'm racist. So I don't even know what to say. And like I, that, nor like the community was say- really, and, I, I I sorry to cut you off. I just wanted to say like the the example with Brett Weinstein and also the the joke that Mark Norman tells. I will say that if if I felt that that sort of reverse paranoia that I'm gonna seem racist or come off racist in some way, I don't really I don't feel that. Or if I have felt it, it hasn't really registered to me. Which is a good, maybe a good thing, maybe a bad thing that I'm just not aware of that feeling, but. I just feel like the podcasting format where you're talking to someone one-on-one, there's going to be so much context in that conversation that I'm not really worried about it. Like if I was performing in Mm -hmm. front of an audience of thousands of people, maybe that would cross my mind. But in individual interactions, I mean, it's not really – people are going to – I'm going to give people a lot of information based on my actions and based on my words. And I'm pretty confident that if they come away liking me or disliking me, it's not going to be because of a racist thing. Like, I'm almost certain of that. So I'm like, what this person think what they want. I'm just going to say what I'm going to say. I don't want this interaction to be diluted by my anxiety. I don't always succeed on that, but that's Mm -hmm. been my approach where I'm just like, if this person thinks this, then like, fuck it. Like, I know I'm trying to come from a good place. Yeah, I would rather that than someone holding back because they're like too focused on color. I I would rather that because if let's just say you do say something, Brittany, then, Brittany, okay, I don't see Brittany, I don't see color. Uh, thank you. Okay, this podcast is done. <laughs> um, like, I don't see color at all. This is great. I'm like, thank you so much for not seeing me. Um, but no, I'd rather those conversations because then if you they do say something, then you can talk about that. But I would, I don't, like, for me, I don't hold back. I don't want anyone else holding back. But when you were talking about the paranoia, I started to see linking, like, the performative allyship might be a way for people to literally be like, I am not racist, to have that paranoia be negated. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, maybe that's an incentive for people to perform allyship because they got to make sure people know they're good safe and yeah it's almost it's like a corporation donating millions of dollars for the wrong reasons it's it's like a signal to say that i am the way that is within the overton window do not attack me because i'm Mm -hmm. in that woke box this is i'm setting up a non-racist flare like you're literally you feel like you're drowning in uh your your, you know your company's getting all these attacks maybe you'll go under you're getting dragged through twitter maybe someone made a hashtag about you and then you like fire off this woke flare into the sky in the form of a donation or tweet and you're like i'm not i i am not one of them i am i am one of you 
Yeah. I started saying, like, when I started seeing, like, BLM signage in people's um, businesses and they were outside the door. I don't know if I said this in an article or podcast, but I just said I was actually in Brooklyn. I was seeing all of these stores having it um, that otherwise haven't had it for years. And I was just thinking this to me, it was similar in a, in a way of, you know, during um, the seven plagues with the Pharaoh and, and, and Moses when the, the ghost of death mm. Uh, and with the blood and with the the people putting the lamb's blood above their their doors and if you have the lamb's blood there that the ghost would pass you by and not kill your firstborn and i just mm. like connected that to the blm sign like signages like it was like this pass me by like don't like don't one when the riots were happening like don't harm us we're even if they, mm. let's just say they were completely not for BLM, but if they had that there, it was almost like, okay, they're good. Mm. We're going to pass mm. by them or, or yeah. even, oh, they're good. We're not going to cancel them. So yeah, I was thinking that too. Yeah. I, I just, I just realized we're, we're <clears throat> past four. Do you, do you have another 10 minutes to get into Amber Heard, Johnny Depp a little bit or, or we can just end it here if uh, I have, you're past I have done? 10, I have 10 minutes. Yeah. I okay, have to be per- somewhere, but I have 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay, because uh, I get, we'll end off with this because I watched a couple of your videos that you put out on the trial, and I actually uh, the one that you put out about Amber Heard specifically, where you were speaking about how she was wrong, but also deserves a place to heal. That actually flipped a switch inside my head where I'm like, yeah, I've, I've been hating on Amber Heard a lot on the podcast, and like in my own thoughts, you know, what is this doing to drag her even more and and so i wanted to ask you now that we're a month about a month separated from the verdict a few weeks something like that how have your thoughts evolved on this whirlwind of a trial because like it was fucking crazy to see two people in hollywood go at it in public in a televised trial like how have your opinions kind of evolved with the distance that we now have from the verdict yeah, I, one, I never thought I was going to make any type of video or commentary on the trial, but I started to get really interested when I was watching it and I was interested, like, just how court works, how, and then with the ex- mm. experts coming on and just everything. But then I really was interested with Amber Heard. I did make a separate video talking about how her couching her claims against Johnny Depp in 2016, 2018, and now, you know, how that narrative of believe all women, you know, accidentally helped her because during that time when she said it, believe all women was very popular and no one really vetted her. They're like, oh, that happened. Yeah. Okay, cool. And it happened. Now, Johnny, you're trash. Let's move on. So I made a video about that. But then when I started seeing the comments as I was watching the trial and seeing the comments of people as if they were Johnny Depp, like going in on her, like in a way where I'm like, this is really un- like strange and weird that you guys are so like, I understand like she's lying and she ruined and it's fine. She should be challenged with the way people are going in and saying she's disgusting mother narcissist. I'm like, when have all y'all like went to school to diagnose people? Like whatever. Um, yeah. But once I start, it was really social media and like seeing like all these clips, like of, of, making fun of her when I won't lie like some of them were funny but then it just 
wasn't funny anymore. I'm like, I, I just started a switch in me went on. I'm like, what if that was me or someone I knew? And every day they were waking up to this type of wrath mm. every single day. Is this yeah. normal for one person to get every day? I'm like, I would not be surprised if she deleted herself from the world. Like, I would not yeah. even be surprised if that happened. And yeah. and that video was kind of hard to, not hard, but I was like, how can I do this video without sounding like I'm, I'm taking up for her? I'm like, I'm not taking up for her and saying that she was, is right, but her humanity I'm taking up for. Yeah. Because I understand, I've I've gotten backlash before, and I couldn't imagine it being on this scale. And also, there's two sides to every coin. Toxic relationships are very, very complicated and complex, and none of them are. It's no one's a whole saint in it, or a whole victim, or a whole villain. Hmm. But with that video, I I just was like, everything's being sensationalized. One and more so in. People were being incentivized, I believe, to sensationalize the trial with these commentary YouTubers because they're making tons of money. I mean, people make, there's millions of dollars being made just making comments and commentary on Amber Heard, but specifically oh, yeah. being on Johnny Depp's side and do mm. dogging her as much as you could because people wanted that content. They wanted to see that. And I know a lot of people might have thought maybe looking at my videos you're going to get that but they didn't get that and said they got something totally different because i'm like i one i'm not for the clout thing i'm not gonna be like oh everyone's doing that so i am i actually stopped talking about the trial because i'm like i really had a lot to say but i'm like i don't want to keep making video after video after video because who who cares um mm. but that one i wanted to do because i wanted people to check themselves because people love when other people are in misery like yeah. online because when you're online, it's like this weird, like a piece of you is is gone. I feel like a piece of people are gone. I'm like, you guys would never say this to another human being's face to face. But online, it's just this safety and numbers to, to go at someone and to use them as like to show how, you know, good and moral you are in comparison to this person. 100%. And I'm like... It's just, it was annoying because I was just like, all of you in the comments are acting like you've never done anything wrong. Like you've never lied. Like you've never this. And um, Amber's actions were disgusting. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, or, and whatever. Um, mm. that doesn't make everyone then some type of Gandhis or monks. Like I don't, it just was weird how people were acting all haughty. Like she is. Yeah, no, like, I, I kind you of. You were uh, just yelling at your wife about the fact that she didn't make you the right type of sandwich, my dude. Just kidding. Yeah, it's know. like you're making a video but, about Amber Heard and how much uh, she's a bitch and you're recording a video for YouTube and then your wife says something in the background. You're like, yo, shut the fuck up, bitch. I'm trying exactly. to record a video on Amber Heard. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of got caught up in that a little bit because I, I recorded a couple solo podcasts about the trial where I was trying to stay level headed. And there were a couple points where I was like, I'm getting too emotional. Like I am like Johnny Depp's on my team because I'm exactly. also a guy like this isn't what this is. This is two people in a toxic whirlwind of a relationship. And Amber heard the evidence shows that you know, she crossed the line and got physical and she uh, defamed Johnny Depp or they both, uh, I believe the verdict was two way where 
Johnny Depp's lawyer was found guilty of a $2 million count of defamation. And then Amber Heard was found guilty of that 10 plus million, 10 plus million dollar count of defamation. But like, there's so much shit coming from both sides. And as I'm watching the trial, I kept like, I had to consciously tell myself, like, be like, no matter how unlikable Amber Heard seems and her all her uh like the forensic experts and even her own lawyers like to me they're just unlikable like that was object they were object Mm -hmm. objectively unlikable where i had to remind myself am i giving this person too much shit in a solo podcast because they're unlikable or am i responding to what i'm actually seeing or is it a combination of both and then you know when i heard your take about amber heard and how she deserve she also deserves the space to heal and she also you know did fucked up shit mm-hmm. best case scenario yeah yeah be- best case scenario she goes away for a, a long time not like to prison but just like gets out of yeah. the spotlight she gets a place where she's away from social interactions she has a better group of people around her cuz the people up to that point certainly weren't doing their part it seems like to make her aware of whatever uh illnesses or disorders or actions she was succumbing to and best case scenario you know maybe two years five years ten years from now she gets to a place where she recognizes what went wrong exactly why it went wrong and she can move forward from that as a human being everyone deserves that place to be able to do that um, especially when you're talking about things like a defamation trial between millionaires where like no one was murdered. Like there's no, like it's a serious charge what they were both dealing with, but it, it's, we're not dealing with someone's life that was lost. Someone's life was deeply mm-hmm. affected, but it, it's not, uh, they're both walking away from the trial as millionaires, uh, which is how it started. And mm-hmm. so if she can get a space where she's able to see, what happened, what went on. And same thing with Johnny Depp. Like he's just not going to walk away from this and be like, I won like processed mentally, you know, I'm back to even like, it's going to take him a lot of time too. So mm-hmm. I am in support of a way and, and in support of a world where each side gets their own place and uh, just gets whatever space it is to be able to heal and to be able to realize their wrongs sometimes those people go to prison depending on what the crime is and that has to be the space but in this case you know that's not the case um but still any everyone deserves some sort of place to be able to do that yeah and i think that i hope she goes away and works on herself and gets therapy and i believe i made that video before she went up to testify because I was like, you know, I was acting as if I was talking to her. I'm like, you have a choice. <laughs> just say yes. you lied. Don't keep, just say you lied. Just say he didn't really do it. You don't, like, don't go on this, you know, under oath and lie about, like, just turn around. But then I made that reference to Macbeth. And sometimes some people feel like they're in too deep that they got, the only way to get out is to go deeper in it. And I'm like, she does. It's either go deeper in it or or take accountability right now. And she obviously chose the the former, um, but and that yeah. was so hard to that was yeah woo, yeah just just crazy. just say just say you lied find a place to heal and start an OnlyFans to pay off your court fees that's like oh, the, no. the trifecta <laughs> well, for her happen. that she needs to. Um, well, no, I know she'd make a lot of money. <laughs> I'm just yeah. She, I mean, I mean, like that is the most in demand uh, 
OnlyFans at the moment, and I'm I'm definitely not the first person to say that, but like, oh yeah, um, there's people on, with you know, but on, uh, she also just oh, this ahead. last thing, yeah, you know when it when um Dr. Curry, which I I love her when she talked about Amber. By the way, how, I was talking about Johnny Depp starting OnlyFans, not Amber. I'm just oh, kidding. Oh, I, then I'm watching that. <laughs> just yeah. Um, um, but Dr. Curry, when she talked about diagnosing Amber with borderline personality disorder and hysteronic personality disorder, I think that's really when my, my sympathy for Amber kicked in where I'm like, wow, if she's really dealing with mental illness. Maybe this really is what she thinks her reality is. And is this on our side as culture? when we laud mental health awareness. And if she really is dealing with mental health issues, is it hypocrisy in our end that we are constantly badgering at someone that's dealing with a mental illness? Shouldn't we yeah. actually doing the opposite? And even if you're not saying, come on, Amber, good help. Maybe you're just not saying anything at all. So I started thinking about that and how that whole thing could be that was conflicting. Mm. Um, Abs- but absolutely. yeah. Well, We'll see. We'll see what yeah. happens with her, and you know, best wishes. She's yeah. Mother, so. Yeah. No, it's it, it. It wouldn't be an excuse for what she did, but if no, you, if I love she Johnny. did, yeah, God, if she Johnny. did have, if she is mentally unwell, if she had, if her brain was wired in a way that wasn't able to process things the way that she's supposed to, and that led to part of or most of what she did, then you start to look at all the trial and the backlash in a different way. If that it was the case, if she was suffering from a disorder, mental illness, um, I guess that's not going to come out now. But it, 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 I enjoyed your perspective and your perspective on this podcast. This was a blast. Thank you so much for it being was fun. super generous with your time. Um, no, yeah, I'd seriously like uh, I I feel uh, welcomed, and I feel like it was a great conversation. And where can people check you out? Because I'm going to link this as well in the, the intro and the, the podcast, wherever you're listening to this or watching this, you can go check out these links, which I highly recommend. Thank you. Um, well, YouTube, American Shade with Brittany King. And you can see me on Twitter. I like to share my thoughts there. And that's uh, King Talissa, K-N-G-T-A-L-I-S-S-A. Um, and then on Instagram, you can find me there. Um, and my handle is b.talissa. Yeah. And then if you just kind of like just Google my name, you'll find out my articles. I write on different things, social media. I write on music. I write on race, social issues. So yeah, I like to dabble in a lot of things. Amazing. Well, thank you, Brittany. Thank you so much. Bye.